Good evening. If, if you would, go ahead and turn your Bibles to, um, to 2 Kings chapter 21. 2 Kings chapter 21. We'll be there in a minute. It really is a pleasure being here tonight, and I just want to echo some thoughts that Bob shared this morning. What, what a wonderful lesson that was. Uh, one thing that came to my mind um, is, is a is a phrase that I think we're pretty familiar with, which is familiarity breeds contempt, right? So something you do over and over and over, you just kind of lose value of, you kind of lose thoughts of, it doesn't, uh, doesn't hit you the same way it did early on. I'm sure you can, you can relate to that. And perhaps even just coming to church can be a familiarity breeds contempt type uh, thought. But it was a good reminder this morning of, of why we're here. We're here this evening, we're here, we were here this morning, uh, we'll be here again, Lord willing, because we love God, because, because we come here to worship God. Now we do it with other people, and that's a wonderful blessing uh, that comes along with it, but what a, what a great reminder that was, that we come here to worship a good and powerful God, and we do that again uh, this evening. You could argue, um, you could argue that repentance is is the most emphasized lesson in in the Bible. Um, mostly because of the frequency it comes up. Uh, this this implies two things, though, that I believe cannot be stressed enough, and that is that man is rebellious, but God is compassionate. And so, whenever repentance is brought up, and again, it's repeated over and over and over, we are reminded of of those two facts. Man is rebellious, but God is compassionate. The first five books uh, of the Bible set up God's people and God's law, so there's, there's less overt references to repentance there. But after Israel enters Canaan, the words uh, turn, return, and repent are found everywhere. You see it in just about every single book. Because God's people continually rebel against God, God in His compassion sent prophets to bring the people back to God, to bring them to repentance, to have them return to God. And we see this in so many different parts of Scripture. We're going to look at uh, quite a bit of them uh, right here. First Samuel chapter 7, Samuel is speaking. He says, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. Isaiah 6 and verse 10, a pretty familiar passage. We've been looking at the parables in here, and this is repeated before the parables often. Uh, but at the end of this verse, he says, Hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. If you return, you will be healed. Jeremiah 3 and verse 12, Return, faithless Israel, and I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious. Ezekiel 18 verse 32, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. Hosea 6 and verse 1, Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us, but He will heal us. Joel 2 and verse 13, Now return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate. Jonah 3 and verse 8, this is Him, this is him speaking to, to, to Gentiles, to the Ninevites. He says, Let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way. Malachi 3 and verse 7, Return to me, and I will return to you. And then, if, uh, if you go into the New Testament, John the Baptist, the first words of his ministry are, Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. Which should sound a little bit familiar because Jesus says the same thing. Matthew's account says the first words out of Jesus' mouth, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
2 Peter 3 and verse 9, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. This is a small sample side, but you get the picture, right? God is constantly trying to bring His people back. Why? Because man is rebellious, but God is compassionate. Why does God, though, have to say this over and over? Why is this the message that He's constantly sending to His people? Well, one is that there's multiple generations, and so, of course, that, that message is going to have to be preached multiple times. But even within the generation, He has to say it multiple times, and He has to say it through multiple prophets. This is something that God is constantly trying to get across to His people. The fact is, the majority of people don't repent. And some who do, I do not fully commit their lives to change. This evening I want to talk about repentance. I want to talk about returning to God and serving as our tutor uh, this evening. We're going to be looking at the story of King Manasseh. We're going to explore uh, this idea tonight. Take a look at 2 Kings chapter 20, beginning of verse 21. Or I said chapter 21 before. Go back to chapter 20. We're going to look at the very end uh, of, of chapter 20 and then go on into chapter 21. Sorry for all of those who are looking at your phones. That makes it a little more difficult. Uh, verse 21. So Hezekiah slept with his fathers and Manasseh his son became king in his place. Chapter 21 and verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem and his mother's name was Hephzibah. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. The story of Manasseh, if we're really going to tell it right, actually begins with his father, Hezekiah. And if you remember, a few weeks ago we looked at Hezekiah. Uh, I showed you this map uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, as we looked at Hezekiah when he, was, when he was up to the neck with Assyria. You remember that? He was up to the neck in Assyria, and when he was in that situation, he did not follow what other kings did. He actually went to God. You have Assyria here, uh, this powerful nation. Again, all the green, that's Assyria. And then you see that tiny little yellow dot right in the middle. I circled it in red so you could see it. The nation of Judah somehow survives. Why? Because Hezekiah went to God in his distress. Went to God when he was up to the neck. We remember that. But then, a story we didn't talk about is at the end of Hezekiah's life. If you remember, Hezekiah gets really sick. And he prays to God and he asks God for healing. Uh, appealing to his faithfulness in the past. And God hears him. And he extends his life by 15 years. You remember that? God extends Hezekiah's life by 15 years. Which would mean, since Manasseh was 12 when he became king, that means Manasseh was born during that 15 years of grace that God is giving Hezekiah. We just read it. What kind of king was Manasseh? He was pretty terrible. So in God's grace, Manasseh is born. Why is that? During those 15 years, why did God give Manasseh to, to, the, to the people? Well, first, I think it has something to do with Jesus' line being preserved. But let's look at Manasseh's life. Uh, a little bit. Let's look at the sins of Manasseh. Again, uh, 2 Kings chapter 21. Uh, if, you, if you scan with me through verses 2 through 9, what you'll see is some pretty terrible stuff. First thing, it says that he was worse than kings of the other, or, or excuse me, he was worse than kings of other nations. 
If you look at uh, other kings in the past and you look at their wickedness, whenever those kings are brought up, they said they followed in the footsteps of their father, acting in wickedness like their fathers. For the kings of Israel, if they were really wicked, they were compared to Jeroboam. Well, who is Manasseh compared to? Manasseh is so bad that they can't compare him to former kings, certainly not his father. They have to compare him to the kings of other nations. And did you catch how bad he was? He's worse than those kings of other nations. Remember, part of the reason why God drove those nations out, it wasn't just to preserve land for God's people. Part of the reason why he drove those people out was because they were wicked and that nation needed to be punished. And Manasseh is said to have been more wicked than them. Verse 9 indicates that he was even worse. Other things that he did, he rebuilt what Hezekiah destroyed. Hezekiah was having to undo the sins of his fathers, right? He had to undo those sins. He had to walk in boldness to destroy the, the high places, to destroy those foreign gods. However, Manasseh is undoing what his father undid. Hezekiah's one step up is Manasseh's two steps back. He's constantly tearing away what Hezekiah built up and putting back these foreign gods. It says that he worshipped other gods in the house of the Lord. And I think there's some, some significance to that. I think there's significance to the fact that he was not just worshipping other gods, but he was doing it in the house of God. That's like committing adultery in the bed that you share with your spouse. The, the, the symbolism there, I believe, amplifies the sin. We're supposed to see this as... What is he doing? And the, the writer even elaborates on that. This is what the house of God was, and yet Manasseh is doing this in the house of God. We see in verse 6 that he sacrificed his own son, a common practice of the other nations. He practiced witchcraft, divination. He sought mediums and spiritists. Verse 9, it says that he seduced the people to practice the same. That, that, that strong language there, the word seduce. He is seducing the people to commit evil. Here is the leader of God's people using his power to make them even more wicked than the, than the nations that surround them. Jesus says to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23 that they convert people to become twice the son of hell as them. You remember the promise to Abraham? One of the promises to Abraham was that they would be, that God's people would be a blessing to other nations. They are supposed to be a blessing to other nations, but yet we, hear, we see here examples of wickedness to their own nations. Uh, wickedness that even other nations haven't seen before. And if you look down at verse 16, he kills innocent people. It says that he fills the city of Jerusalem with blood from end to end, the blood of innocent people. Several commentators attribute the death of Isaiah to Manasseh. And you remember Isaiah? Remember what Isaiah was for Hezekiah? Hezekiah went to Isaiah so that Isaiah would be a mediator between him and God. Isaiah was one who prophesied to the people, spoke of this beloved son that would be born of God, that would be born of a virgin, that would come down to this earth and deliver the people. Manasseh kills, kills him. I think it's safe to say Manasseh is a pretty bad guy. 
He is not a good person. And so God punishes him. Look at verse 10 of, of 2 Kings chapter 21. Now the, Lord God, uh, now the Lord spoke through his servants, the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, having done wickedly more than all the Amorites did who were before him, and so has also made Judah sin with his idols. Manasseh is taken away. Manasseh is captured by Assyria. He's dragged away with hooks. It says with fish, fish hooks through the nose. Maybe your, 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 uh, your, your Bible has a little footnote there. He's dragged away and made a prisoner in Assyria. And this is when we rejoice, right? This is when we're supposed to be rejoicing because a wicked politician has received a just punishment, right? And if this is where the story ends, I, I actually think there is reason to rejoice. Uh, some of the psalmists certainly rejoice when God destroys their enemies, so perhaps this is what we're supposed to do. I mean, even though he is uh, of God's chosen people, he is an enemy of God. And now he is being brought to justice. But I want us to see that even in God's punishment, which is orchestrated by God, we see God's patience. Look over at 2 Chronicles chapter 33. 2 Chronicles 33. Manasseh is not killed immediately, like you might imagine he, he should be or would be. He's not killed immediately. And while there is still breath, there is still opportunity. And what does Manasseh do in that opportunity? Look at verse 12. Look at verse 12 of, of chapter 33. When he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. The first thing that he does when he is in distress, like his father Hezekiah, is he goes to God. We see Manasseh goes to God. He entreats the Lord, the only one who can save him. He doesn't seek foreign nations for help like other kings had done. He doesn't seek foreign gods like you might imagine he would do. He goes to God. Now, it's interesting, again, that Hezekiah was given a, a bonus 15 years. We looked at that before. And Manasseh became king uh, when he was 12. There are some commentators that would suggest that it was, uh, Manasseh didn't become king right when Hezekiah died. Rather, he became king as a, like a preventative measure. Like once Hezekiah does die, then Manasseh will be ready to go in. They suggest that they reigned together for a few years. How in the world did Manasseh turn out the way he did? Especially if they were reigning together. I, again, this is, this, is, this is supposition on my part. But I, I, I imagine you, Hezekiah bringing up his son to rule in the way that he ruled. How in the world did Hezekiah turn out the way he did? Have you ever seen good parents have kids who completely go in the opposite direction? That's free will. Uh, Manasseh uses his free will to do something else. But it's interesting. Even though it seems as though he ignored about any, everything he learned from Hezekiah, buried somewhere deep in the back of his mind was either the example of his father or maybe even the words of his father, go to God. When he was in distress, he goes to God. As parents... We cannot manipulate our kids into faith. 
We cannot manipulate our kids into genuine faith. It's their choice. But even when they make choices that are not good or maybe even downright rebellious, so long as they have breath, so long as you have genuinely told them and showed them, go to God, there is hope. I think that's the story of Manasseh right there. Manasseh, when he is in distress, goes to God. And secondly, the text says that he greatly humbles himself. What we are seeing in Manasseh is true repentance. And if we can apply this story to our own lives, it's that true repentance must begin with humility. True repentance is going to begin from a state of humility, not just some SOS signal that we're sending out because we're in distress, wishing and hoping that God can hear us, but we must repent with a broken and contrite heart, as it says of David in Psalm 51, knowing that it is our rebellion that is separated from God, and it is only His compassion that can make things right. And what this text illustrates, and many others from the prophets and throughout the New Testament, is what it says in verse 13. Verse 13 says, When he prayed to him, he, being God, was moved by his entreaty. God hears us. God heard Manasseh, regardless of the magnitude of our sin and rebellion, regardless of how long it is that we live that life, God always hears and is moved by a humble heart. What a blessing that is. I believe the story of Manasseh tells, teaches us that. And as the story continues, we see that, uh, that God not only hears Manasseh, but delivers him. And the third thing we, uh, we, we must see in Manasseh's repentance is that his life changed when he entreated the Lord, when he prayed to God and when God delivered him. Look at the things that he does. Verse 14, it says that he, he fortifies Jerusalem. Verse 15 talks about him throwing these foreign gods outside the city. Uh, he sets up an altar of the Lord. He orders the people to serve God only. Which is interesting because earlier it says that he seduced the people to serve foreign gods. But here he is taking God's people back to the Lord. We see a total change in Manasseh's life. Paul says in Acts 26 and verse 20... Um, as he's talking about how he, he preached to the Gentiles, he said that they should repent and turn to God. But here's the kicker. Performing deeds appropriate to, or if you're reading from the ESV, consistent with repentance. Performing deeds consistent with repentance. John the Baptist said something similar in Luke chapter 3 and verse 8. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. True repentance is proven when there are deeds consistent with repentance that accompany them. We see that in Manasseh's life. He, tr he truly turned things around. I, I love the, the image of the New Testament. You, you have this idea of uh, conversion or repentance is like one man dying and a new man living. I mean, that's the image of baptism, right? Uh, the old man dies along with all his rebellion, and a new man is uh, raised. A new man with faith-filled deeds takes his place. That's the idea. And so repentance is always going to be accompanied with a new way of life. And I think we see that in Manasseh. Manasseh's life is a wonderful example of repentance. However, and I don't want to suggest that Manasseh didn't truly repent. There are some things that we see uh, that he failed to do. Uh, we see, when we go further and we go into chapter 34 in the, in the life of Josiah, we see that Manasseh didn't fully restore the temple or the law. 
He doesn't fully restore the temple of the law. We know this because Josiah does this in the next chapter. I mean, almost starting from scratch, he builds up the temple. He digs up the law, uh, dusts it off, and reads it to the people, right? Part of the reason why the people did not turn their hearts fully to the Lord, I believe, was because two of the most important aspects of their relationship with God, the temple and the law, were not available to them. They didn't have that place to go, as we talked about this morning. Back in the passage we referenced before in Luke 3, when tax electors come to John and they repent, John tells them, hey, stop taking more than you ought to. And that's good. But we see this taken even further in Luke chapter 19, in verse 8, in the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus not only stopped taking more than he ought to, you remember what he does? He returns all that money back four times the amount that he took. He donates half of his money to the poor, half of, of, of his possessions, I should say, to the poor. He wants to thoroughly rectify whatever wrongs he committed. That's repentance. Another thing Manasseh fails to do is he fails to completely destroy these foreign gods. We read earlier that he threw the gods outside the city, and that reads like a really good thing, and I'm not suggesting that it's not. However, look at chapter 33 and verse 22. This is in reference to Ammon, his son. Ammon did evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh his father had done. And Ammon sacrificed to all the carved images which his father had made, and he served them. It would seem to imply that he just went out to the trash heap, dug up dad's old trash, and decided to start worshiping it. Compare this to what Josiah does with those foreign gods. If you look at chapter 34 and verse 4, it says, They tore down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and the incense altars that were high above them he chopped down. Also the ashram, the carved images and molten images, he broke into pieces and ground to powder and scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He left no trace of these foreign gods. Perhaps maybe learning from what his grandfather didn't do, he completely burns them up, scatters the ashes on those who served them. He wants nothing to do with these foreign gods. In Acts chapter 19, we see something similar. Paul is preaching to the Ephesians. These Ephesians were um, uh, people who practiced magic and divination. And you remember what they do? It wasn't enough for them to just stop doing those things. They gather up all their books dedicated to, to that magic, and they burn them. And it even uh, says that it amounted to, to a pretty large sum of money. They want nothing to do with those anymore. Their repentance was shown through the fact that they are completely distancing themselves from that life. True repentance demands a change. And sometimes that change has to be pretty radical, but we do it anyways, if indeed we want to repent and return to the Lord. I mean, this was Israel's problem, really, from, from the time they went into Canaan. God defeated the, the inhabitants of the land, and then he told them to completely drive them out. He still gave them some responsibility. And they did, kind of. They didn't completely drive out the people. And that ends up becoming their undoing. Makes me think of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, what should you do? Pluck it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. 
Have nothing to do with that anymore. Get rid of it. Yes, it's going to hurt. Yes, it's going to be uncomfortable. It might even make your life more difficult, as I would imagine not having one eye and one hand would do. But that's what true repentance looks like. It's a total overhaul of what you were doing. You are no longer going to do those things, and you're going to distance yourself as far from it as possible. And lastly, and what Manasseh failed to do is the people never fully returned to the Lord. It says in verse 17 of Second uh, Chronicles 33 that the people still worshipped in the high places. And it's interesting, Jeremiah even talks about Manasseh, even though he did not prophesy while Manasseh was around. Jeremiah 15 and verse 4 attributes the doom, that's the word that Jeremiah uses, the doom that awaits God's people. He attributes that to the sins of Manasseh, even though he did repent. He still attributes it to the sins of Manasseh. Manasseh is synonymous with Israel's downfall. Again, I'm not trying to suggest that his repentance was not genuine. But I think what it shows is that even though repentance is good, it does not remove the baggage of our sin. There, is, there are still things in this life that we have to live with because of sins that we have committed. We simply cannot fully know the degree to which our sin has hurt us, Perhaps more importantly, the way that our sin has influenced others. Even though Judah as a whole was rebellious, Manasseh, Manasseh sped up the downfall exponentially. Again, he seduced them to do things that no other king had done. Manasseh's repentance could not atone for the other people's sins. Nor could it set right the downward spiral that, that had already been in motion. You know, I shudder to think of what sin I have influenced in other people. Of what my life has done to influence others for bad. Even though Paul ultimately repented. Remember, he talks about how he forced other people to blaspheme God. That's, that's a lot of guilt you've got to live with. For those who are considering repenting, um, but are putting it off, all you're doing is collecting more baggage and potentially causing other people to collect more baggage. If there's something you need to repent about, do it. There is absolutely no reason to wait. I want you to turn to James chapter 5. Uh, this will be the last, last passage that we'll look at tonight. Look at James chapter 5. There's an interesting phrase here I want to look at a little bit. Beginning of verse 19 uh, of James chapter 5. It says, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So not only does restoring a wandering brother save his soul, but it will cover a multitude of sins. What does that mean? What does it mean to cover a multitude of sins? Well, I think there's a, sin, there's a sense in which uh, restoring that brother is covering the multitude of sins in his life. I think that's certainly true. Or even covering a multitude of sins that he may have potentially committed had he not returned. But I also want you to consider that covering a multitude of sins in restoring this brother 
you have, you have curbed the influence of his sin as well. That other people are no longer impacted by that sin, perhaps negatively, because of what he has done. And therefore, you in some way have kept them from sinning. The ripple effect of sin, we simply, again, we cannot know the extent of it. So, if we have restored a brother, covered a multitude of sins. That's the grace of our God. Let us all be humble enough to repent. Let us do deeds consistent with repentance, no matter how difficult or radical they may be. And let us limit the baggage that we must carry and that we might cause others to carry as well. As we looked at before, the words turn, return, and repent are used throughout the Bible. But the word you see most of all, or at least in the New Testament, is the word return. And I like that image. Because if you're returning, that means you had a starting point, right? If you're returning, that means that you are going back to something. For those of you who are Christians but have been living a life that you shouldn't, the invitation is for you to return to God. Return to Jesus. Not to us, but return to God. Do not delay in this. Curb the influence of your sin and return to God. But even those who are not Christians, those of you who have not chosen to commit your life to Jesus, being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, the invitation for you too is to return. Return to your Creator. Return to the one who formed you in the womb. And you have been His from the beginning, loved and cared for from the beginning. Return to Him. Truly repent of your sin. Follow in deeds consistent with repentance and make whatever radical change that you need to make. And have faith that just as God heard Manasseh and was moved by his repentance, he hears you and he will be moved by your repentance as well. If there's anyone here who is subject to this invitation, please come up now while we stand and while we sing.